Are you looking for a way to save a little money? What about getting your subscriptions under control? If so, then I've got just the solution for you. Rocket Money. With the help of Rocket Money, I was able to find a subscription that I completely forgot to cancel before the free trial was up. I'm sure you've all been there. And Rocket Money can help me cancel it. Between streaming platforms, apps, delivery services, and even parenting and kids subscriptions, it's hard to keep track of exactly what you're spending and how much it all adds up to each and every month. Not to mention the fact that it seems every single day one of those subscriptions suddenly jumps up in price. Rocket Money alerts you when this happens so you're never caught unawares. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps you lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. With them, I can see clearly what my monthly spending is and how it compares to the month before, making saving money and taking control over my finances so much easier. They'll also try to negotiate lowering your bills up to 20%. All you have to do is submit a picture of your bill and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. They'll even deal with customer service for you. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash morning cup. That's rocketmoney.com slash morning cup. Rocketmoney.com slash morning cup. Today's podcast is brought to you by newspapers.com, the ultimate destination for exploring the mysteries of the past. If you're fascinated by true crime, get ready to dive into the stories that made headlines. Newspapers.com offers a billion pages of historical newspapers from the U.S. and beyond, and you can search the entire collection in seconds. Their vast newspaper collection is a goldmine for eyewitness accounts, crime scene photos, news reports, and more. Whether you're interested in famous crimes or long-forgotten cases, Newspapers.com gives you a front-row seat to more than 300 years of history. For our listeners, Newspapers.com has a special offer. Use the code CUPOFMURDER for an exclusive 20% discount on your subscription. That's promo code CUPOFMURDER at Newspapers.com. Sign up today and start unraveling the true crime mysteries that keep you up at night. There were two more murders 15 miles away. When police arrived, they found the telephones and electricity lines. We have a weird homicide. scene described by one investigator as reminiscent of a weird... A baby face can get you a long way. On December 9th, 1962, William James Boskett Jr. was born and would use his youth and sweet face to try and get away with murder. But when he was caught, he would change the laws for juvenile offenders of the future. So if you like your coffee hot, but your bones chilled, sit back and start your day with a morning cup of murder. William Boskett Jr. was born on December 9, 1962 into a family and life that treated him unkindly. His father was sentenced to life in prison after killing two people in a pawn shop just after he was born, was released, and would later shoot his girlfriend and then himself to avoid getting sent back to prison. And his grandfather, the only father figure he had, was released from prison and began raping young William at the age of nine to, quote, teach him about girls. All the while, his mother cycled in boyfriend after boyfriend, each more violent than the last. William attempted to protect his mother and, on one occasion, beat one of these men with a pipe and slashed at him with a knife. Then, when William was 10 years old, he was hit by a car when he ran out into the street and suffered from a serious head injury. 
the cherry on top of his dysfunctional life. His mother, heeding some advice, petitioned that he be placed in a center where he could receive supervision, and he was sent to the Children's Center in Manhattan, which he escaped from and landed himself in a more secure detention center, a place described as the child's equivalent of an adult doing time in the notorious Attica prison. He spent the next few years of his life in and out of various detention centers where he was known for his violent temper, even telling the juvenile authorities that, one day, he would be a killer just like his father. That young, troubled boy had no idea just how right he would be. By the time he was 15 years old, William Boskett was facing some charges for attempted robbery. But despite his past issues, he had a loving couple who wanted to adopt him and change his life. Unfortunately, until that was final, he was given free reign to roam around and find himself some trouble. On March 19, 1978, William was riding the subways looking for a person to rob. This was not a new activity for him. In fact, on a previous venture, he had snagged $380 from the wallet of a sleeping passenger and used it to buy himself a gun. So when he found himself a new target, a sleeping middle-aged man wearing a gold watch and traveling on his own, he was armed and ready. But as he tried to swipe his valuables, 44-year-old Noel Perez suddenly opened his eyes. William reached for his gun and shot the stranger through his right eye, the bullet going straight into his brain. The man threw up his hands and William, shocked that he had not killed him instantly, shot a second time in his temple. He grabbed Noel's watch, his ring, and about $15 and ran off to a shop near Yankee Stadium. A few days later, William and his cousin armed themselves and went off to find a new victim. They headed to the number three subway trail where they spotted a motorman named Anthony Lamort. He had a CB radio on him and the boys figured they could make a few hundred dollars selling it on the streets. When Anthony noticed the boys, he yelled at them to get out of the area, that they weren't supposed to be in the yard. William squared off and yelled back, why don't you come down here and make us get out? As Anthony climbed down the steps and went to approach the young boys, William pulled out his gun and demanded the radio and any cash Anthony had on his person. William shot Anthony Lamort before running off into the night. Thankfully, he was able to get into the dispatcher's office and call for help. He ended up surviving his attack. Over the course of three nights, William and his cousin pulled three more violent robberies. With the help of his gun and his baby face, William was getting exactly what he wanted and wasn't facing any consequences. He was feeling invincible. On March 27, 1978, William set out to find another victim on the train and found only one passenger, a Hispanic man named Moises Perez. William pointed his gun at Moises and demanded his cash. When Moises responded that he had none, William pulled the trigger. William rummaged through his pockets, found $2, and ran off before anyone noticed. The next morning, when the death appeared on the front pages of the newspaper, William proudly showed his sister his accomplishment. That same day, William's adoption received its final approval, an adoption that, when William's crimes were brought to light, would never officially take place. William Boskett was tracked down and arrested not long after his crimes were committed, though I could find very little information on what led to the arrest. When he was tried in a New York family court, William shocked everyone, including his lawyers, by pleading guilty to both murders. Due to his age, he was sentenced to a maximum of five years at the Goshen Youth Facility, 
the short sentence caused a massive public outcry, and the governor at the time called the state legislature into a special session. When they were finished, they had drawn up the Juvenile Offender Act of 1978. Under this act, children as young as 13 could be tried and sentenced as an adult. New York was the first state to enact this law, with all of the other states following suit over time. With the passing of the Juvenile Offenders Act, oftentimes referred to as the Willie Boskett Law, not only was Williams' life changed forever, but so were the lives of all juvenile offenders of the future. A year after he began his five-year sentence, William escaped from the youth center. He was recaptured two hours later, tried as an adult under the new law, and was sentenced to four years in state prison. He returned to the Division of Youth in 1979, was released in 1983, and, a hundred days later, rearrested when he robbed and assaulted a man living in his apartment complex. While on trial for this crime, William took it a step further and assaulted several court officers. He was found guilty of attempted assault and sentenced to seven years in prison. Now, this is where that little facility escape came back to haunt him. Because he was tried as an adult for that crime, he was now branded as a habitual offender. So, under New York's habitual offenders law, his future sentences would be much harsher. For example, had he been convicted for assaulting the court officers, it would have been his third felony. Therefore, he would have received 25 years to life. He was acquitted of that charge, but still maintained the status of habitual offender. Convinced he would die in prison, William began a number of altercations with corrections officers. He was arrested, convicted of arson, and sentenced to 25 years to life. In 1989, he tacked on an additional 25-year-to-life sentence when he stabbed a corrections officer and again when he assaulted an officer at the Woodbourne Corrections Facility, a prison he had only recently been transferred to following other altercations. All sentences had to run concurrently, meaning his earliest possible release date is now 2062, when he is 100 years old. In total, William Boskett has been cited for almost 250 disciplinary violations over the course of nine years, with a 1989 assault earning him solitary confinement where he has been held ever since. He lives his life in a plexiglass-lined cell stripped of all amenities except for a cot and a sink-toilet combination. He has four cameras watching him at all times and is only allowed out of his cell for one hour a day. When visitors come to see him, he can only speak to them through a window of his cell. He is New York's most isolated prisoner and is not slated to return into general population until 2046. All in all, William Boskett has only been free 100 days of his adult life. Thank you for joining me in my morning cup of murder. Please show me again tomorrow to hear what terrible thing happened on December 10th. Don't forget to rate and subscribe and let me know how you like it. If you want to help support the podcast, there's always Patreon or just sharing it with your true crime obsessed friends. And remember, stay safe. Today's episode is sponsored by Wondery's new podcast, Death of a Starlet. I know that my listeners love true crime, and today I'm going to tell you about Death of a Starlet, Wondery's newest miniseries about Playboy Playmate of the Year. Dorothy Stratton, a series I think just might be your next obsession. In August of 1980, Dorothy Stratton was found dead in the home of her estranged husband, shot in the face at close range. 
She was just 20 years old, the girl next door with a shy smile and whispery voice who didn't know her own beauty. But Hugh Hefner did. To him, she was his next Marilyn Monroe. To famed Hollywood director Peter Bogdanovich, she was his dream starlet. And to her husband, Paul Snyder, she was his meal ticket to fortune and fame. These three ambitious men needed her. One of them murdered her. I'm about to play you a brief clip from the show, but while you're listening, be sure to subscribe to Death of a Starlet on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or if you want to binge all six episodes right now, join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app. The link is in the show notes. Wondery, feel the story. Death of a Starlet by Hollywood and Crime contains depictions of violence and strong language. Please be advised. It's Thursday, August 14th, 1980, 11 p.m. Private detective Mark Goldstein sits alone in his car staring at a nondescript two-story house on a quiet street in West Los Angeles. The guy who lives in the house hired him to tail his wife. She's having an affair. Passing headlights reflect off the windshield and then fade away. Goldstein unrolls the window and a curl of cigarette smoke spirals into the night. He squints at the two cars in front of the house. They've been parked there since noon. The woman he's looking for must be in there. But what are they doing inside? That's the question Goldstein has been asking himself all day. The two roommates got back a few hours ago, and it's been completely quiet since then. At 11.30 p.m., Goldstein decides to do something he rarely does. Inside the house, Steve Kushner and his roommate Patty are sprawled out on opposite ends of the couch when they hear the phone ring. Patty answers, then passes it to Steve. Uh, Steve Kushner here. Steve doesn't know the caller is sitting in a car just outside the house. Uh, Kushner, it's Mark Goldstein. I need to speak to Paul. Is he there? Uh, Sorry, I haven't seen him all day. He's got to be in there. I'm looking at his car. Can you check? Kushner sighs, grabs his beer, and walks downstairs to Paul's bedroom. He doesn't come down here often. Paul Snyder likes his privacy, and lately Paul's been particularly moody. Kushner feels along the hallway for the light switch and flips it on. The door is closed. He presses his ear to the door. Nothing. Paul? You in there? There's a guy on the phone says he needs to talk to you. It's quiet. Paul? All right, I'm coming in. It takes a moment for his eyes to adjust. When they do, he's not sure what he's looking at. There's blood everywhere. On the wall. On the floor. Krishna's eyes open wide. There are two dead bodies, both of them nude. Is that Paul? The face is so mangled he can't tell, and there's a woman lying across the corner of the bed. Her head is almost unrecognizable through the gore. Then he sees the long blonde hair. Oh, God. He turns and bumps into Patty. Jesus, don't, don't, don't go in there. 
Fifteen minutes later, Private Detective Mark Goldstein stands in the living room, the phone cradled in the crook of his shoulder while he smokes. Kushner sits on the couch with his head in his hands. The other roommate, Patty, is curled up in an armchair, staring at the TV with vacant eyes. The police are on their way. Goldstein is now waiting to speak to someone else who needs to know what's happened. Finally, he hears the man's voice on the other end. He takes a breath. Mr. Hefner? It's Mark Goldstein. I'm a private detective. I've been working for Paul Snyder. Uh, Listen, I'm sorry to have to tell you this, Mr. Hefner. I'm really sorry. It's about one of your playmates, Dorothy Stratton. When he's done speaking, there's a long pause. Then the line goes dead. Less than 12 hours later, what Goldstein tells Hugh Hefner will be all over the news. Playboy Magazine's 1980 Playmate of the Year has been found shot to death. What nobody knows yet is why. At Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity, and the American dream starts with purpose. Whether your pursuit involves a bachelor's, master's, or doctoral degree, GCU's learning environments are designed for supportive networking and collaboration. With over 330 academic programs, GCU provides a path to help you fulfill your dreams. The pursuit to serve others is yours. Find your purpose at GCU. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu.